everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole is back with me today. Finally done with being sick, hopefully. Mostly. Mostly. Man, it was rough. Yeah. You were out for like a couple weeks. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't think I've been that sick since I was in like middle school. That's not good. And it wasn't like the normal players that everybody's getting. It was some mystery illness that we couldn't identify. No. Just like, but you like, you know, like flu symptoms, yeah. but like rough. Did you ever get tested for flu? No, but other people around me who had it did, and it was negative. Mm. But uh, I don't know that I beat it so much as it beat me, and I crawled back slowly. Crawled back slowly. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, you know, that's at least you came back. That's and the big if thing. If not dying is beating, then yeah, I guess I did. Yeah. Well, there you go. No, that's good, man. Well, glad to have you back. Glad everybody's feeling better. Yes. Um, the uh, your our long lost buddy AJ filled in uh, last week for you Thank to you, do AJ. a patient case. Appreciate so. It. Um, we're happy to, happy to have him in the hot seat for once. <laughs> um, but, uh, today we are going to be doing another accredited episode, um, covering the American Diabetes Association 2023 guidelines. I'm um, going to go through some of the updates and, uh, thanks to our friends at freece.com for partnering with us once again, um, and getting this ACPE accredited, uh, through, um, their contacts and their website. So if you are an unlimited, uh, member on freece.com after you listen to this episode, you can follow the link in the show notes or just go to their homepage, click learn, and you'll see podcasts and you can see all the episodes that we have available on their website that are accredited and take the post-activity test for this particular episode. It'll ask for a password, which is going to be ADA2023. The ADA is all caps and that'll give you access to the, the test. And then once you complete that, then uh, you will be able to uh, get one hour continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. Um, if you are not a free CE member, make sure that you check out all the content on their website. They have all kinds of monographs to, that you can uh, get continuing ed from just reading through the monograph. You can watch live lectures. You can watch uh, our podcast or listen to our podcast. Um, they have live events all the time, all kinds of good stuff. So make sure you check them out. Um, we also have a discount code in the show notes as well that you can use that will give you a discount off of a unlimited membership. And um, yeah, thanks to them for, for partnering with us. But where uh, where do you want to begin with this? Because we're we won't we've already done a couple episodes yeah. with uh, diabetes injectables. We did oral medications. We talked about SGLT twos and GLP ones. Yep. So we won't bore you guys with more of that stuff because we've already kind of gone through a lot of it. Right. Um, so this is more of an update of the twenty twenty updates. Really, really about the updates is what we're going to focus on. So each year ADA comes out with a new one, which not all um, guidelines do come out with a new you know, guideline each year, but this is their 2023 update, which was, you know, actually released in December of 2022. Um, not a whole lot of crazy changes, but definitely added some things that we've been talking about throughout the year. Uh, and then put some emphasis possibly on some things that they haven't emphasized as much before. Um, so I figured we can talk about the treatment algorithm because that's always a, a big one that uh, ends up on the PowerPoint slides of many, um, teachers and professors and pharmacy schools and med schools and whatnot. So the, um, the main change I think with this algorithm is that usually it's just like metformin right at the top and then everything else below. This doesn't necessarily do that. It kind of splits it in between um, reducing risk for cardiorenal issues and then achieving and maintaining glycemic control and weight loss. Right. 
Yeah, and and I, I like because last last year was the first year that you know blew everybody's mind that they were gonna take away the metformin recommendation, and I think this goes even one step further toward like you can clearly see that they're very much in favor of looking for patient you know patient specific ways of of treating you know their and managing their diabetes. Like you can say. Um, you know, the, we, we always, we've kind of looked at cardiovascular events. We've looked at, um, like, so ASCVD, we've looked at heart failure and CKD. Um, but now like right from the start, they kind of have like it's split to where one side you're dealing with those types of comorbidities. And then the other side, you're kind of looking at weight management, all those things like Cole was saying. And, you know, I think that it just, it goes that much further of kind of showing like, again, the individualized, like, um, treatment process is very there's not like one size going to fit all with, I with diabetes even, i don't think you've even described this as an algorithm it's more of a continuum each of them start at the same time it's just very comorbidity based and depending on what they have that's what you're going to focus on right. and then follow whatever it recommends based on that so those of you who are watching the video version <laughs> i just switched over so you can kind of see um the algorithm here if you haven't taken a look at it yet but it splits right to the very top you know if your goal is achievement of maintenance uh, and maintenance of glycemic or weight management um or cardiovascular risk reduction you know or any other renal risk reduction you'll go to the left or the right but you'll see the treatment options and the combinations are very similar to what we've seen in the past anyway so just uh you know kind of fyi for looking at that plus they added terzepatide now obviously uh, yeah terzepatide's there and i think that i mean there's always an emphasis on weight loss of course but generally i guess i can't remember exactly what the last one looked like it's up there kind of above metformin with lifestyle stuff well because they had like hypoglycemia management and things like that Mm -hmm. um kind of like in like I remember it was kind of like road out like to where right. in different columns that you would go with but this one actually has like them almost like ranked so yeah. like for weight loss for example it'll say it has efficacy and so f- for very high efficacy they have semaglutide and terzepatide um, and then for higher uh you know, efficacy or for high, high efficacy. So just the one rank under them, they have dulaglutide, liraglutide, and then, um, intermediate, they have just GLP ones not listed above SGLT2 inhibitors, right. neutral effect metformin, DPP4. So like they, they list them out, um, kind of like in a hierarchy, which I think is very convenient to me. The weight loss jumped out, which I, I know it's always there, but maybe it jumped out because we, we did have the GLP one weight loss effects before, but now we have terzepatide, which is much more significant, and we see all the benefits that weight loss can bring. And so we have more than just a recommendation of lifestyle management. We have that recommendation plus potential pharmacotherapy plus potential surgery to recommend to. So they, I mean, they they have a pretty extensive section on their weight loss uh recommendations yeah so um yeah we won't go through all the different pharmacotherapy options um just since we've like i said we've done those a lot um the section that i think both of us uh we were talking about but kind of before we started recording um the section that's kind of interesting that they spent a lot of time talking about is the the section seven the diabetes technology um where they really kind of went into the continuous glucose monitoring um in patients that uh, are, you know, everything from on basal insulin, they had some rewarding there. They had patients that, uh, you know, basically recommending, you know, these patients that are there to use continuous glucose monitoring and also went into, you know, how they shouldn't have interrupted access to their, you know, to their, uh, 
the the actual monitor and the the sensors and whatnot, depending on right. which, what the, what they're using. And they even went into some stuff uh, talking about like interactions between uh, certain like medications and things and how they can throw off the like you know some of the readings that these continuous glucose monitors are are coming up with or, or reporting. Right. Um, did you have anything specifically on that, Cole? Yeah. So I didn't realize this, but there are things. Um, that can affect the readings and give uh, improper readings. We, we're aware of this, and I remember being taught this with um, with finger stick glucose monitors. There's things that you can do, manipulations you can do with the finger, things that you can take that would affect um, the reading and may, maybe make it not accurate. Similar with the continuous glucose monitoring devices. So, for instance, uh, and it's kind of brand specific. So, if you're taking more than four grams a day of Tylenol, with a Dexcom G6 sensor, you could get high sensor readings or higher sensor readings than the actual glucose. You could also get that with a Medronic Guardian reader um, if you take any Tylenol. Uh, also, if you're taking alcohol with the Medronic Guardian reader, sensor readings may be higher than the actual glucose. Vitamin C with the Freestyle Libre can give higher readings. Um, and that's 500 milligrams a day or more. 500 milligrams a day or more. Um, tetracycline or mannitol can both affect the Sensionics Eversense device. Never heard of that one. Uh, and then hydroxyurea can affect Dexcom G6 and the Medronic Guardian. So that, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, those are, for those of you who haven't used the continuous glucose monitoring, so they're fantastic. Yeah. Um, I know I've personally had the most experience with the Libre and uh, the Libre 3, I think, is is going to be coming uh, available very soon, if not already. And um, so I think that's that's always been my I've used the Dexcom a couple times. Right. Um, I think they're new on this. Interestingly, they seven. do delineate between the two because there's continuous glucose monitors and there's flash glucose monitors. Yes. So the Libre 1 and 2 were both flash where it doesn't give you a continuous you reading. You have to actually... You have to hold the phone or whatever it is up to the device. It'll tell you right there, but it doesn't always read it. Uh, but the Libre 3 will be or is reading constantly. continuous glucose. And then the other ones that we mentioned, like Dexcom and all that, that's continuous. Um, yeah, they, they. I think in the past, the way I thought of a continuous glucose monitor or even a flash, like a Libre 1 and 2, was for in type 2 diabetes, was for patients who had you know, a lot, maybe more trouble uh, managing their glucose. Maybe they're on multiple insulin regimens or, you know, things just aren't going great and it's just an additional arrow in your quiver to, to help them. That's not really how this guideline recommends. I mean, it, it kind of recommends it for pretty much anybody that could get it. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know that you would use it for your, like, patient who's very well controlled and everything's great. Like, it might not be totally necessary, but they recommend it pretty strongly and they do make a comment that... Um, Medicare is going to is apparently evaluating covering it more often for type two for type two. That's good because yeah. that was the, the I had that I ran into that several times where at my old job where I would have a patient who even patients who were type ones that were able to you know get on the uh, like Libre two for example and they were they were doing great they loved it and then they turned sixty five and then going through the durable Process. as a durable medical equipment right. and having to fill out the form I mean it's they've made steps to like make it a little bit easier. Like free, um, freestyle has like on their website, a form that you can fill out and like mm -hmm. which pharmacies have contracted with Medicare and stuff, but it's still just much more of a hassle than it used to be. Um, but I'm really glad that they are kind of 
wording it in a sense that's like like everyone should have access to it, especially for because for type two patients, if before at least a lot of the trouble I'd run into is the patient would be on basal insulin, but a GLP one instead of prandial, and mm-hmm. so the insurance would be like, no, they have to be on like two or three more um, or, or more uh, injections a day of insulin in order to qualify, and right. it's like, well. You know, what if I have someone who's an A1C of 14 and I'm just trying to, like, do, you know, some management stuff, you know, tweaks to their their regimen and whatnot, um, you know, that, that those patients aren't going to be qualified. And right. so, yeah, it was kind of, that was kind of frustrating. But it sounds like they're wording it in this way to kind of push maybe third-party payers to covering it, especially if Medicare is reevaluating it. Usually the other insurance companies will follow suit. And they include, um, when you're assessing, like, glycemic control, they kind of include readings of the glucose monitor so generally we're looking at for type 2 diabetes patients we're looking at a1c goals less than seven or less than eight depending um and i don't know if this is more related to um to patients with type 1 diabetes i didn't really specify that i can tell but there i just wanted to mention a couple of terms that they kind of reference um that they're looking at uh, with continuous glucose monitors to assess glycemic control but one is using time in range um or a glucose management indicator. And they'll say that they're looking for um, non-pregnant adults to have a time in range related to the glycemic control greater than 70% with a time below range less than 4%. Um, and different factors like that that can be evaluated on with a continuous glucose monitoring device that can give you a little insight, um, maybe a little more real time than an A1C, you know, that only goes back mm-hmm. three months or so. So I don't know exactly how they intend to use that. Maybe I should look further, but I thought that was interesting. Well, and they, they did one section that they did sort of, I guess, reword uh, for section six, going back a little bit to speak on that same um same kind of subject about uh, glycemic targets um, on their recommendation 6.5 B. They uh, basically outlined that patients who are frail uh, or patients who have a high risk of hypoglycemia, that instead of having like a set, you know, goal that they need to be uh, following as far as A1C or things like that, um, that uh, to consider them being a target of uh, greater than 50% of time in that range that we'd want to see them in and then less than 1% below range. Um, And so we're kind of using, utilizing that as opposed to just shooting for some set A1C goal, which I mean, kind of matches like the American College of Physicians. They say, if you don't have a 10 year life expectancy or greater that, you know, just basically training for symptom control. So I like that because I feel like there's still this, you know, sort of like just obsession with pushing patients lower, even though we know at least historically that that hasn't really been shown uh, to to prevent or reduce negative outcomes. Um, One thing I am interested to see, though, is with the growing popularity of GLP-1s and SGLT2 inhibitors, especially like now with terzepatide, you know, are, are they going to reevaluate? Right. So if we're not using... you can more safely push oh, yeah. people. Yeah. So, because the risk of hypoglycemia is not there. So now right. I'm wondering if they're going to redo some of those like Accord trials or things I like imagine that. because if you look back at those, then they're using um, like TZDs and... Yeah. Um, Salonaries and stuff like yeah. that to and, push the and, and that was always Insulin. like the reason why those either didn't show a benefit or and like a cord's example it showed harm was because of hypoglycemia. Like all of the negative, um, even the death that was associated with yep. the lower A1C was all due to hypoglycemia. Yep. So yeah, I think that uh, that's going to be something that to to keep an eye on. Um, and which whether you'll still see positive outcomes from it. You might not see like harm, but right. you, you know, we'd still have to value to see if it's still beneficial. At that right. Point exactly. To, to do. 
Now, um, just since we're talking about insulin real briefly, because one thing that hasn't really changed as far as like the recommendations, uh, as far as injectable medications, they still recommend a GLP-1 as first line injectable if possible, and then moving on to basal and then prandial insulin one meal at a time added from there. Um, one thing that I, they've mentioned this before, but I don't think we've actually talked much about in detail and it's becoming more and more uh, obvious to me that this is a very important thing, um, is the concept of over-basalization. So if a patient is on basal insulin, um, you know, we want to look for too much basal insulin basically being prescribed or, you know, reducing if we're, if they're seeing us in clinic. And so I've had patients, for example, who were on 70 units of Lantus twice a day. And realistically, there's sort of this, uh, ceiling effect that you get with basal insulin. Um, and in some cases that can actually be harmful the higher you go up because then the risk of hypoglycemia occurs and that they don't treat that properly, you know, then you're into a whole new slew of problems. Mm -hmm. But, uh, the guidelines do mention that, you know, if the basal dose of a patient is, is more than basically 0.5 units per kilogram per day. So it's patient specific based on their weight, then you would want to, you know, evaluate if, if one, you need to bring their insulin dose down and then see if they're a better candidate for adding on prandial insulin or GLP-1 if they're not already, mm -hmm. um, and kind of utilizing those postprandial mealtime spikes that are most likely causing the problem because just adding in more basal insulin and just going up and up and up and up in the dose is not a very effective right. method. Right. And I, I, I went and listened to a terzepatide CE um, a while back at some some restaurant downtown and they, uh, the endocrinologist that was talking, he made a comment about that, like how he'll see patients on like really high, high doses of insulin. He'll cut their dose of insulin like in half. Mm -hmm. And they said they're, they're, their A1C will improve just right. because they're not having these huge swings. Right. And so, and there's some other clinical signs that you could see that might be uh, a sign that they have over basalization, high bedtime to morning or post to preprandial glucose differentials. Um, of course, a lot of hypoglycemia, um, or just like Mike mentioned, a lot of shifting, high glycemic high variability, variability can, can be an indication too. Yeah. So that's a, I just want to make sure we had at least said this in this podcast that so you can't call us on leaving some important information out. Can't oh, say that we didn't mention oh, it. You may have never heard that word before. Over basalization. Because I don't think we've ever said it on this podcast. I, that's, yeah, I don't think we have, which I think is, is something uh, we should have done. So yeah. I'm glad we're trying to correct or correct our, <laughs> our wrongs. Um, all right. So what else we got? Um, yeah, so next, there were some other interesting things. So they mentioned, um, they make a specific mention of Actos, um, I, which I thought was interesting. And they say, in people who've had a stroke or have had evidence of insulin resistance and prediabetes, consider prescribing pioglitazone. The medication can reduce the risk for stroke or heart attacks as long as it can be taken without side effects. So if you look at the specific recommendation, it, it you, you have to be obviously cautious of the um, fracture risk and the retaining water. But I thought it was interesting that they made a specific mention of pioglitazone, which I, I don't know. I don't feel like they do mention it much in a positive way, but well, they I at think, least made that mention here. I think the one, the one downside of that recommendation or potentially anyway, would be if they've had an MI, you have to also assess, make sure there's no signs of heart failure. failure. Yeah. Cause then obviously if they're stage three or four from the New York heart failure or heart association, you know, standards, then that's going to be uh, problematic. Yep. And they rank their recommendations like A through E, it looks like, yeah. even F, and they gave this an A, which I was surprised by. Yeah. There is evidence that it can be beneficial. And, and I've said before too, like, uh, you know, the couple times that I've actually used pioglitazone was patients who needed insulin sensitivity. Um, however, they 
couldn't weren't a candidate for whatever reason for metformin, then pegolizumab can be uh, useful there. So I think it does have its place. It's yeah. just one of those things that pretty specific. Pretty specific. Um, I think one of the, the probably the biggest. I would say section that's kind of been updated was um, sections 10 and 11, where they talked about cardiovascular disease, you know, and risk management Mm -hmm. and as well as chronic kidney disease and risk management. Um, So, I mean, like every, they, they start off obviously um, discussing everything from hypertension and LDL goals and all that, but there's been some, some changes there. Um, As far as, the blood pressure goals, they've actually now come out and officially said, which, I mean, they've had this in the past, but yeah. they, they make it very clear and list out all the it evidence. It made it sound like they didn't have it in the past, but I was reading it and I was like, I thought they did have this last year. Did I, they not? I thought they did too, I but I'll have to Maybe go back. we're just too focused on AHA. Uh, yeah. But, but one third, less than 130 over 80 is their official recommendation for patients with diabetes. Yeah. Um, and they did mention Sprint, uh, but one of the issues with the sprint trial and I, you know you guys have heard us talk about that but one of the issues with sprint is that they excluded patients with diabetes so that was always the issue with kind of quoting that specific study which is what usually everyone quotes when it comes to um you know blood pressure goals but uh they they do have um the 130 less than 130 over 80 now is a specific goal and um if i'm going to switch screens here on my computer so you can see this uh, little hierarchy chart um, where they have, you know, reduction in diabetes complications. Um, then they have glycemic management, which is the one we always obviously think about, but then blood pressure management, lipid management, and agents with cardiovascular and renal benefit is being um, kind of the, the pillars that hold up the the, the ceiling of re- Very nice. reduction in diabetes complications. Um, Looks like with, the kid's building blocks. With a foundation of lifestyle modification and diabetes education. So I, I really, it's very simple, but I like this algorithm a lot. Yeah. It's uh, very, uh, very useful. Um, they did kind of hard back to other recommendations related to potentially initiating uh, two blood pressure medications if they had a confirmed office-based blood pressure over 160, over 100. Uh, and they talked about, you know, needing multiple agents and things of that nature. They did mention pregnant um, patients that have diabetes and chronic hypertension that uh, their threshold is 140 over 90 for initiation and that um, there's limited kind of data on like what the lower limit should be as far as uh, blood pressure management. But, um, you know, they kind of say like a blood pressure target of 110 to 135 systolic, 185 diastolic is suggested um, in the interest of reducing risk for accelerated maternal hypertension. And uh, they do say that um, the therapy should be lessened if the blood pressure does drop below 90 over 60. But that's only level evidence E. They, um, they had some updates related to monitoring of um, like um, albumin and creatinine ratios and things of that nature, basically doing it more often. But they still have that recommendation that is doing an ACE or ARB to the maximum tolerated dose in individuals with diabetes and a ratio um, over 300 milligrams, but also 30 to 299. Yeah. Uh, so basically over 30 milligrams uh, still using that. Um, the other, uh, things that they actually went into some detail about was, uh, as far as like studies and stuff, talking about these blood pressure goals, um, they did mention sprint, uh, and then they went into accord and, and you know, some detail as well. Cause accord, if you remember, was looking at, uh, there was two major arms of it that were the blood pressure arm and the A1C, um, 
arm. And so they were looking at, you know, A1C, strict A1C control versus more lenient and then strict blood pressure versus, you know, or less or more lenient uh, um, blood pressure goals as well. And the blood that Accord study was stopped early because of the increased risk and mortality with the lower A1C or more strict A1C goals like we just had talked about earlier. But, um, you know, the blood pressure arm didn't really show a benefit overall, uh, but they do make a uh, comment that um, the pre-specified secondary outcome of stroke was significantly reduced by 41% in the intensive treatment arm. Uh, plus, there's also that whole idea that, one, one it was underpowered um, to show statistical significance. And the it was a two-by-two two factorial uh, study. So, like, the pa- patients who were in the strict A1C arm uh, which we know was problematic and, and lessened uh, or increased the risk of adverse events, um, including death. They uh, some of those patients were also in the strict and you know A one or they, it's the strict blood pressure arm. And so the concern is, well, did we really see? It was it really not a benefit overall of that primary composite, or was that negative outcome that was being facilitated by the strict A one C control kind of taking away the benefit that we could have seen from the blood pressure you know reduction? So it's it's one of those things that you know that's um, there's enough data now. Plus, they mentioned the uh, the step trial, um, which was 8,500 patients, 60 to 80 years old, and um, I think it was uh, it, basically patients um, had the same kind of thing, looking at different targets, and um, it, the patients uh, had a better outcome when the the tar- going for the lower the lower target. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, quite a few uh, studies to back it up. They talk about advanced, they talk about the hot trial, meta-analyses, things like that, um, basically backing up that recommendation. Yeah. But Similar things to what people have been talking about, but yeah, the, the issue is the lack of diabetes in some of those that probably kept them from doing it until now. Yeah. So as far as like the pharmacological interventions when it comes to managing blood pressure. Um, Cole had already started talking about this a little bit, but uh, they have it. It's This is a little bit different than I would say the American Heart Association and whatnot, because they say that if the blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90, um, but less than 160 over 100, then they want one agent being started. And if the patient does have albuminuria or a history of CAD, um, then they want you to go with an ACER ARB. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, you can do ACER ARB, calcium channel blocker, or diuretic. I, did you notice what they had in the diuretic section, though, about uh, the recommendation? No. But they prefer um, chlorothaladone or endapamide. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was kind of funny. Which, after the uh, after that trial came out, that is Maybe chlorothaladone's not as big of a deal. Yeah. But endapamide, I'll take it. Let's go for it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and like Cole said, the, it used to be kind of everyone who had diabetes got an ACE back in the day. And then it was more so patients who, you know, had a have albuminuria, so 300 or more um, albumin creatinine ratio. But they also, with level um, evidence B, say that if it's patients 30 to uh to 299 basically to also do an acer arm right so I thought and that, it's still not wrong to start an ac even if they right, don't have that or an right. arm um i think it's just one of those things that yeah we didn't have to, we don't have to jump to it if they don't have any issues right. um they do say that if the if the initial blood pressure is greater than 160 over 100 to go ahead and start two agents right from the beginning mm-hmm. um same kind of concept as far as uh, albuminuria or cad they want you to do acer arb plus either a ccb or diuretic um and then you just pick two of those three if they don't have that. Um, but yeah, so basically they just kind of go through and, and 
it, it, at that point, it kind of follows the exact same hypertension algorithm that we're all familiar with to where right. they would add the third agent of that list that's not already added that on there. And then if you needed a fourth line agent, they do recommend um, spironolactone or plerinone. Yep. It's kind of like the, the fourth agent to be added on. Right. Um, let's see. What else do you want to... Anything with hypertension? Anything else? I think that's all I had for blood pressure. Talk about lipids? Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So um, in general, a lot of it's pretty similar. So they're still recommending um, a moderate intensity statin for individuals with diabetes, 40 to 75, um, no other issues. They're still recommending the the standard um, statin. But they did kind of update some recommendations related to goals, right? Yeah. So the the primary um, hypertension or I'm sorry primary prevention rather with lipid management we've always kind of said if you have diabetes um, and you're in that you know 40 to 75 years of age range you're getting moderate intensity statin um, so that was the card study kind of showed that so a tor of a 10 versus placebo in that patient population um, was shown to be beneficial and reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Um, they also say that, uh, you know, with a little bit less quality evidence that patients who are 20 to 39 years of age with additional atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors, that it may be reasonable to initiate a statin therapy um, in addition to lifestyle therapy. So we can kind of bring those, you know, the age range down. Um, now, Patients who have diabetes, this is still primary prevention. So patients who have diabetes that are 40 to 75 years of age um, at higher cardiovascular risk, um, and including those with one or more atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk factors, um, it's basically recommended to use high-intensity statin um, to bring that LDL down by 50% or more. And they want a target LDL of less than 70 which, you know, when thinking the, the guidelines when it comes to lipid management that we usually quote are the ADA guidelines. Mm -hmm. They usually save the less than 70 goal for patients who have had an ASCVD event, history of ASCVD. Like, so you're basically thinking secondary prevention. Um, this is still considered primary prevention uh, for these patients. And so um, in this case, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we're, we're pushing that LDL goal lower than we have previously. Right. Um, now, the, as far as the ASCVD risk factors, um, there's a couple of them that they kind of go through and mention, and uh, I wanted to make sure I pull these up really quick. The uh, What they consider, you know, ASCVD, um, and this kind of goes back to the treatment algorithm as well, if you're trying to evaluate which medication for the actual diabetes to start, they say that... Uh, you know, history of MI, history of stroke, and then any revascularization procedure are mm -hmm. kind of like the, you know, all the CVOT trials. Are CVOT, agree on yeah, those. those are all in, in, in all the different studies that have, the FDA have required these medications to undergo. Now, other things that they have been included in some studies and not in others would be things like um, transient ischemic attack, mm -hmm. unstable angina, uh, amputation, um, or basically PAD, yeah. and um, stable and un, or symptomatic and asymptomatic CAD. Um, would all be like potential classifications of ASCVD. Yeah. Um, now, what they consider to be high risk factors would be if a patient is 55 years of age or older, plus uh, obesity, hypertension, smoking, dyslipidemia, albuminuria. Those are the patients that you would basically treat just as if they have ASCVD established already. So those same risk factors are what they're kind of using to say, okay, if they have these types of things on top of their diabetes, then go ahead and put them on a high-intensity statin as well. Yep. So you would treat them with the pharmacotherapy regimen for diabetes for ASCVD, like GLP-1s, SGLT-2s, and they'd also be on a high-intensity statin, which I think... That's kind of 
a little bit, you know, different than what a lot of maybe some of us have been doing in the past. Right. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. A little bit different. For secondary prevention, it's mostly the same, but uh, also a little bit different than it has been in the past. Um, but they would say anyone with secondary prevention, they're recommending high-intensity statin with a goal reduction less than, or with a goal reduction of at least 50%. But they're putting the goal uh, of the actual lipids to be less than 55, which we've seen in previous um uh, the endocrinology, diff- the endocrinology guidelines. guidelines where they would push it to, they called it something funny, extreme like risk, extreme risk, people extreme risk, uh, to be less than 55. But this says anyone with secondary prevention, less than 55 primary prevention, less than 70. Um, so they're, they're agreeing with the benefit of the lower LDL. They say, use the statin addition of a Zetamime next or a PCSK nine with proven benefit. And the population is recommended. Um, they don't recommend the addition of a fibrate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think a lot of that, the lower LDL goals are coming from the PCSK9 studies. Yeah. So I think that's one of those situations where, you know, are, are, are we, are we going to be able to get patients access to these because of the cost? I mean, they're come down a little bit, but that's mm-hmm. still a big issue. So is that in mind? Usually is going to be patients sick in line mm-hmm. option for dyslipidemia. Um, have you seen, uh, the the preliminary stuff from that bemidoic acid, mm-hmm. um, the clear outcome study. Um, I don't believe it's actually been published yet, but the initial kind of like that they had a press release from the company basically showing the the top top uh, line evidence, whatever is statistical significance. Yep. And um, as of now, it's for patients who already have ASCVD mm-hmm. um, to be added onto a statin. But it was like over twenty percent further reduction. And LDL and had positive actual uh, impact on wow. uh, adverse cardiovascular events in the future, so I wouldn't be super surprised if this gets added in um, to that list fairly soon. Yeah, um, if that once that if that study continues to show that uh, that potential, then right, I think that'll be uh, a much more cost effective option than PCSK9 inhibitors. Yeah, that'd be very good. Which we're spoiled at our institution because people have pretty ready access to PCSK9s if they've done what they need to do and their LDL is not where it needs to be. But a lot of other places, it is more difficult. Less than 55. So them and the ACE guidelines recommend uh, agreeing with that, especially in patients that have had ACE. I guess not even, they're even being more aggressive, I think, than the ACE guidelines because they're not even saying patients who have like like extreme risk. Extra risk factors on top of having ACBD. They're They're just saying anyone with ACBD. Yeah. so. So yeah, you're right. That would be a little more. Progressive, a little more aggressive. Aggressive, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Um, the lipid guidelines change. I'm, I'm wondering how long it's going to be before we get another dyslipidemia guideline from American Heart Association because yeah. it's 2018 since. Yeah, it was 2018. So it's been five years, guys. Time to update your stuff. I know it's 2023. They're they're all working from home during COVID. <laughs> That's why nothing. <laughs> they're, they're not getting together and <laughs> meeting, talking about anything. But uh, they also, you know, kind of talk about some of the other, um, I think you started to mention something about fibrates. Um, I did just mention that they don't recommend fibrates. Oh, yeah, just for for cholesterol lowering right. in general. Um, yeah, if, and if you look at like phenofibrate specifically, you know, they've, they've looked at that in addition to statins in patients with diabetes. And I think that was the core lipid tr- uh, arm um, and didn't see a benefit of adding phenofibrate as far as outcomes go. Um, they do mention patients who uh, have triglycerides. So fasting triglyceride levels above uh, 500 or above. Um, they want obviously recommending the analysis for secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. Um, and then 
considering medical therapy in those patients. Um, if they have moderate uh, hyper uh, triglyceridemia, they say that, you know, it's basically 175 to 499 that, um, you know, you should uh, kind of look for other issues as well. Um, but the, as far as recommendations go for treatment, uh, they're a little bit different. So if it's 135 to 499, they do recommend with level evidence A, a cosapentethyl, mm-hmm. um, based on the reduce it trial. Yeah. And, uh, so that's where this one pops in. Was that on the last guideline? Yeah. That's been older. Um, and, they, and we've talked about this before. Um, but so they, they talk about like evaluating for issues. So like secondary factors, obviously being uncontrolled diabetes, chronic liver, kidney disease, nephrotic syndrome, things like that, hypothyroidism. Those are all things that could lead to at least moderate hypertriglyceridemia or uh, eventually high. But uh, the actual treatment of that moderate um, would be with a ethyl. They say to, um, to save like fibrates for if, if patients above 500, if not even above 1,000, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of like the um, other recommendations from other guidelines and whatnot recommend a fibric acid derivative after a thousand. So that's when the risk of uh, pancreatitis becomes yep. a little higher. Yep. But even that, I've, 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 I feel like I've seen patients that have triglycerides. I mean, I've heard of patients and having triglycerides in the couple, you know, two, three thousands, and still. Would have you be more pancreatitis. concerned if a patient's on a GLP one plus they've got a high? Uh, triglycerides like that to get them on a little sooner? Probably, if it, but it depends on what they're doing. Because, like, if they're if they're drinking a bunch, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they have some kind of liver disease, whatever, um, nephrotic syndrome, something like, then maybe not as worried. I mean, I would be, I would want to bring their triglycerides down, but I wouldn't say that I would be like stopping the GLP one or anything like that. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on what's going on. Um, speak, I mean, that's, it's an interesting kind of debate on with the GLP ones in general and like the pancreatitis. Cause I've had, I've heard some endocrinologists say that, if it's true idiopathic mm-hmm. pancreatitis, then they won't use a GLP-1 in those patients. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that where they can definitively say patient was an alcoholic, they were this, and that was most likely leading to that, you know, pancreatitis in the first place, some of them will even still mm-hmm. go ahead and use a GLP-1, which is off-label, obviously. But, right. uh, um, you know, it's one of those things that there's, I, I think like if like we could avoid the, the pancreatitis thing altogether, that's great. And so, yeah, I think that just adding on an agent to get the triglycerides down so that we don't have any risk of that is right. ideal. But I don't think we usually, you know, a lot of times the patients aren't going to be on the highest intensity statin that they could be or whatever. So I would say maximize those first. Right. But uh, icosapenethyl is, which is brand name Vasipa, is the one they actually recommend if they're on a statin plus, so the, and the LDL is controlled. Because if the LDL is not controlled, then obviously we want to bump up the statin if they mm-hmm. are not on, on a maximally tolerated statin dose. And then that acosapenethyl is under uh, the brand name Vasipa, which is in specific to that particular agent. Because there has been other studies um, that have looked you know, at other formulations and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there was one um, that looked at a uh, EPA and, and DHA combo um, added to statin therapy in patients that had um, atherogenic dyslipidemia and high cardiovascular risk. Um, 70% of the patients in that study had diabetes, and they didn't reduce any major adverse cardiovascular events when you added in that uh, um, that comparator right. um, or versus placebo, rather. Um, so, you know, that the I think the big... I guess issue that people have with the reduce it trial is that the I guess the the placebo arm was mineral oil, mm-hmm. and so patients say that could have thrown off the results a little bit. But uh, until we have something better to go off of, I don't really know what else. You know, to, to what if they could have put like olive oil in there or something. I don't know. Um, the study that I was talking about with that didn't show a benefit with that DHA EPA combo was they used a inert. Um, 
uh, comparative corn oil. That's an option. So they're kind of high in, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that would also potentially yep. Yep. be an issue. But yep. so maybe icosapenethyl would have, you know, maybe showed even better benefit if they, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. I know. But uh, so that's kind of a weird. Maybe they just have they just have a hard time coming up with placebos for tell you what. gel capsules. I mean, I guess the um, those those capsules are so distinct and kind of. I mean, maybe they just wanted to make sure that the people really thought that they were taking the right thing. You know? Yeah, I guess. But uh, yeah, so that's the one that they recommend adding to it. Um, <coughs> they uh, they actually do mention bembidoic acid um, as you know potential for. They just basically say that that they're waiting on you know, other data until the, yep. this, you know, if the patient, unless the patient can't tolerate other evidence-based options, then that that's out there. But I think that will get a little bit more attention here very soon. They do mention niacin, which, you know, obviously is not used as much anymore, but they mentioned that it's not been shown to provide any additional benefits. So they don't recommend niacin. They, they, they actually, and they actually say statin plus niacin combination has not been shown to provide additional cardiovascular benefit. Um, above statin alone so it's right. actually been proven and that's level evidence a so it's literally been proven to not uh be beneficial, beneficial. and niacin can actually make your uh the diabetes you know be a little bit harder to control as well mm-hmm. so i'm yeah i try to avoid niacin at all costs are any of their antiplatelet recommendations new um uh, i don't think that they're new but i don't think we've really talked too much about them because they have they have a pretty big so, I mean, I think, well, I shouldn't say they're not new because I think some of the wording around, um, it seems a little bit different. like the antiplatelet, uh, dual, dual antiplatelet therapy, right. I think is a little bit different. Um, so just to run down it a little bit, they, yeah. they mentioned aspirin therapy, your, you know, usual aspirin preventative for secondary prevention, uh, with patients, uh, with diabetes who also have ASCVD, um, for people with ASCVD and an aspirin allergy, they say, Clopidogrel can be used, and that's a reasonable option. The dual antiplatelet therapy uh, with a low-dose aspirin plus a PTY12 inhibitor like clopidogrel would be reasonable for a year after an acute coronary syndrome, but may have benefits beyond this period. Is that the kind of wording that's a little bit different? Yeah, um, and I'm looking through the summary just to see if they actually had that last year, and they're not, they're not really mentioning any of that, so that might have been there last year as well. Yeah. But um, I don't think we've ever talked about it on the podcast. Right. Um, Aspen therapy. So we've, we have talked about really the primary prevention use usefulness of aspirin, right. not really being that, uh, that beneficial. However, uh, the one caveat in the one study that did show a little bit of benefit, um, was specifically in patients who, uh, had diabetes. Um, and so, um, that was with the ascend trial, I believe, or the arrive, um, there was a spree arrive and ascend. I can't remember which one's which. All those A's. But um, um, I think it was the uh, uh, ascend had um, patients with diabetes, and they had you know did see a benefit with aspirin for primary prevention, but they also saw um, the high risk of GI bleed. So it, those two things were basically very similar. One, the number needed treat versus number needed harm were, were very similar. So I think that's one of those things where uh, obviously you can be a, a patient discussion. I still personally probably stay away from aspirin for primary prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, they do still recommend with level evidence A of secondary prevention use of aspirin, uh, 81 milligrams. They say 75 to 162, but 81 is usually what most people end up using. Um, they, uh, they talk about patients who you know, have, have had, you're using it for secondary prevention, but have an allergy to as, uh, aspirin um, to utilize clopidogrel, 75 milligrams per day um, can be used instead with level evidence B. And then um, 
the other uh, thing is is combination therapy with aspirin plus low dose rivaroxaban yeah. um, should be considered for individuals with stable coronary and or um, peripheral arterial disease um, that are also at a low bleed risk uh, to prevent major adverse limb and cardiovascular events. That's level evidence A. It's very interesting, isn't it? That was the, um, uh, I think the Compass trial was the first one, and then there was like the Voyager PAD mm-hmm. was the second one showing that uh, rivaroxaban, it's like the 2.5 milligrams yep. um, twice a day yep. uh, added to aspirin can be beneficial. Yeah. Obviously the bleed risk higher, yeah. <laughs> like you'd imagine, plus the cost, all right. that stuff. So, um, yeah, with, uh, with my new, with my new gig, uh, that I'm doing now for work, we don't have access to 340 B pharmacy. So I'm having to like yeah. recalibrate my thinking because <laughs> right. before we had Xeralto for next to at least the higher doses of it for next well, to Well, some of your patients might this depend. Yeah. Some of yeah. your patients might, but yeah. But yeah. I can't just be like, everyone gets charging without right. thinking twice about it because it's six bucks because <laughs> right. it's no longer that much. You got to think about insurances and formularies and things. Yeah. Uh, it's rough. Not fun. But, uh, yeah, I think that, um. The, have you seen anybody on Xeralto 2.5 milligrams at no. all? Well, I, had, I mean, not that I'm in the dispensing space of that much anymore. I just mean like patient like chart and stuff. No, not that I've seen. Because I, I have, I had one guy at my last clinic that we had done that with who had already lost, I think, toes. And mm. they were given a, a try because he had well-documented PAD and mm-hmm. uncontrolled diabetes. And so we were, um, we added that on there. But right. uh Plus, we had a ton of samples and stuff that the drug rep for Zeralta was on it. <laughs> so we had job. like a whole like we had basically had a whole container just to like dispense the two point five for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that uh, I've done it once, but I haven't seen a lot of people get you know go that route yet. Um, all right, I guess uh, let's talk about the renal. Okay. Um, let me pull it. Up. Do you have anything specific you wanted to make sure? No, we... I mean you mentioned that they added finerenone on there, and then yes. I mentioned that they kind of updated the frequency of monitoring um, to be a little bit more often, between like one and four <laughs> times a year, depending on the severity they're recommending. Well, and I think that's something that gets overlooked quite a bit is the uh, albumin creatinine ratio, the urine albumin creatinine ratio. You know, reading that. You know, I've seen patients who have gone three, four years. They have diabetes and they've never had that assessed once right um so anyone with ckd basically needs to get their albumin creatinine ratio um drawn at least um once a year uh and then it goes up all the way to four plus from there um but they you know need to have patients uh or patients with diabetes that needs to be some kind of like you know in the back of your mind that that could become a problem especially if they're not on an ace or arb or um you know already but uh but yeah the the guidelines do um spend some time talking kind of through, uh, you know, the, the recommendations based on, um, the, the risk of, and keeping their kidneys as healthy as possible. And we've already talked about SGLT2s kind of at length in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case though, they do actually mention Phenerinone, mm-hmm. um, which is Corendia brand name. And I think we've mentioned this uh, maybe a couple times yeah. I think we in our new drug update or whatever. But this is an update that. to the guideline. So they've, yeah, they added it in now where um, it's it's approved for patients that have CKD that's associated with type 2 diabetes. Um, basically, you're trying to reduce the risk of EGFR decline, end-stage renal disease, cardiovascular death, et cetera. Um, it, it is a selective uh, mineral corticoid receptor blocker um, that's mediated uh, works by mediating uh, sodium reabsorption and overactivation. Overactiva- um, and so it... it I guess at the surface level looks kind of like spironolactone or a plarinone, um, but it's, you know, selectively blocking mineral corticoid uh, receptors. And uh, it's one of those because it does have this potassium sparing effects, just like um, 
spironolactone does. Um, if a patient has serum potassium at baseline that's above five milliequivalents uh, per liter, then we don't want to to initiate this this treatment. Um, if it's you know obviously in the normal range but close to that, we want to do some monitoring. Um, it also is contraindicated uh, in patients that are taking a strong CYP3A4 inhibitor, um, as well as kind of monitoring the potassium. We need to also monitor for. Um, hyponatremia can also occur with it as well and hypotension. So it can have some effects on blood pressure, but not, uh, it doesn't seem to be to the same extent as like something like spironolactone would. Right. And of course, in this section, they kind of re-mentioned the um, use of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in patients with albuminuria over 30. Um, but then they also mentioned patients who have reduced renal function, um, GFR less than 60, the use of an ACE or ARB. And then they say if you're using it specifically for the renal uh, protective effects, uh, that's not recommended for primary prevention of chronic kidney disease in patients with diabetes and a normal blood pressure uh, with a normal um, albumin to creatinine ratio of less than 30. Uh, it can still be used for blood pressure, but not necessarily for um, preventing kidney disease progression. And of course, there's issues related to chronic kidney disease that patients are going to have to deal with along with diabetes. Um, if it's not, uh, prevented or if it gets worse, um, volume overload, it's going to worsen their blood pressure with, the um, cardiorenal syndrome and that sort of thing. Um, electrolyte abnormalities, metabolic acidosis, anemia, bone disease, uh, so various things that, that we want to try to, uh, prevent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see, cause I know some of the studies that, in, that we're looking at finerenone. Some of the patients were already on SGLT2 inhibitors. I'm wondering, you know, because this kind of comes after the fact of the patients you're already potentially utilizing SGLT2 inhibitors right. um, for renal protection um, along with lowering their A1C. But I'm wondering if there's going to be a hierarchy as far as these go for true like kidney you know, per, uh, kidney, you know, per, uh, dec further decline of right. the similar the to how function. they did with weight management. Yeah. And very high intermediate. I wonder if they would do that with this. Cause obviously this is not, this, the finerenone is not going to affect the blood glucose levels, right. but for somebody who already has more advanced DKD anyway, they're not going to really, the ESGL2 inhibitor is not going to lower right. the, or not going to have very much efficacy when it comes to A1C anyway. Um, we just know that the kidney protection stays on board. So we saw that with the credence trial. Um, and I think, I do think the, these guidelines did, um, move the S the, uh, EGFR kind of cut point to 20. Yeah. Um, they moved it down. They um, did move it down. with, with SGLT2 inhibitors. That's another update just to throw that in there at the last second. Right. <laughs> but, um, uh, for true kidney pr protection, you know, I'm wondering if I, I still personally would go with an SGLT2 inhibitor, but I'm wondering if there's going to be any kind of comparison going forward. Right. But, uh, yeah. So, Anything else that we need to make sure that we mention? I mean, there's other little things, obviously. There's other little things. I mean, they talk about um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and screening for that. Um, the main takeaway from that, I think, is being aware of it and screening for it. The recommendation was made to encourage the use of the FIB4 test to screen individuals, uh, but there's other uh, ways to screen. Um, people at risk would be um, uh, obese patients, patients with chronic kidney disease, older patients. Um, but the, the main recommendation they have about, uh, treating or preventing is weight loss. The goal is to achieve at least 5%, but preferably a 10% weight loss. Um, but most patients will need, um, medications or surgery to manage their weight. 
In addition, you could use a GLP-1 agonist um, to affect that. And or this is kind of another mention of pioglitazone. They mentioned that with um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well. But they, they kind of had some extra verbiage in there related to that. Yeah. So overall, I think uh, this is, uh, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. Not that yeah, they sure. care about my opinion, no, but I mean, uh, I've liked the treatment algorithm a lot. I like it's their, nice when we can go through it and there's not anything that we say trash about, you know, it is. Yeah. Again, not that our opinion matters, but I don't feel like we trash them very often anymore. No, you could probably find more of that in our early episodes. <laughs> We're a little bit more rogue back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, some would argue just less informed, <laughs> but, uh, no, I think, um, I, I think overall, I, I wish that all the big, you know, patient advocate groups like American Diabetes Association would, would update their guidelines every year. Like the, the COP, yeah. the goal guidelines, the, like, I mean, I imagine it, it takes a lot. Oh, I'm sure. Right. But so, but why, but, why are they able to do it? But you know, I mean, hypertension is just as prevalent, if not more than diabetes. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, 2017, we're good. I mean, I guess it's just because there hasn't been that many. Is it just less nuanced? I, I guess. I, well, I mean, it's true. It's less yeah. nuanced. I mean, and the standards less... of care for diabetes is long and hypertension, not that it's straightforward, but probably. Probably just less updates too. Just, just less updates. Need. That's yeah. true. That's a good point. Less Look updates. at us answering our own questions. Incredible. We, we ask them and answer them in real time. <laughs> We're like ask Jeeves. What, what that? Oh my gosh! Remember him? Well, but that what that really comes down to is we just need to think before we speak, <laughs> and and that's what really we could answer it in our brain before yeah, saying instead it, of saying it live. On but the then recording. there'd be long pregnant pauses. Yeah, and so you know whatever we prefer to fill it with. We with prefer speaking. to learn right along with you guys. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so. Um, that's uh that's the major updates that you know we'll we'll make sure we go over. we'll do more diabetes as time goes on inevitably but uh want to make sure we at least mentioned some of those and um you know like I, like we said earlier if you are a free CE member then an unlimited member not just that you've registered to get emails from them or anything but you have an unlimited membership with them then go to the link in the show notes or you can go right to their website and you know, find it under learn. It's a podcast. It's got a whole uh, road just for them. Uh, and you click on uh, the episode that you want credit for. And then this particular episode, it'll be listed and you use the password ADA 2023, take the post activity test. Good to go. Um, if you do not have an unlimited membership with freec.com, then you can't claim credit for this episode. So make sure you check them out if you have, um, but I've gotten a lot of text and emails and stuff about people having difficulty accessing the episodes. Um, so it'll be in the show notes. If you are listening uh, and you're on like Spotify or iHeartRadio or whatever, just click on the description of the episode and there's this whole long thing listed out there with a bunch of paragraphs. It'll be, there's a link in there. Um, and then if not, you just go right to freec.com and you know, log in. But uh, again, as always, thanks to them for uh, working with us. Um, the main sponsor for all of 2022 for our podcast was Pearls. Um, so their drug information app is uh, fantastic. And they just had a huge update come out where they added um, dosing and some other uh, dosing strategies to different medications. They added a bunch of new medications on top of it that have information, you know, drug info about that, just like a, like a Lexicomp or Micromedics or something would. Um, then they have all these new ph pharmacotherapy graphs and, you know, treatment charts and a lot of stuff. They have uh, a lot of really big updates that they've kind of just uh, rolled out. So if you have not checked out Pearls, uh, then go to pyrls.com slash coreconsultrx. Um, you can sign up for a free account with just your email. And from there, you will get access to some of the stuff on the app. You can download the actual mobile app as well on your iOS or Android device. And uh, um, if you like it, which I uh, think you definitely will, um, it'd be something that uh, 
you can you can basically update your to the pro version um, for a very reasonable price, and you get access to all of it. And um, the creator of it uh, is basically adding in stuff every month, and so there's updates all the time. It's a great product. I use it myself, and so um, we've they've also been a huge supporter of the podcast, which we appreciate. And uh, you know, we we very much enjoyed working with them throughout. 2022 and um wish them all the best and success going forward as well but uh check them out if you want more like structured podcast episodes then check out the patreon that we have available um patreon.com slash core consult rx and it's like three or four bucks a month i think it's whatever it is and uh or you can pay for a year up front it's like 36 dollars or 33 dollars something and you will uh get access to all the the slide decks and as well as the lectures that are on there that are much more boring and traditional lecture styles um, but that helps us out as well um and uh, we just added our diabetes section on there uh i think the four the section four will be added in this coming week, but, uh, the, all the pharmacotherapy updates and all that stuff's just been re-updated on there. So check that out if you want a little bit more lecture style format. Plus there's like a hundred now, a hundred diabetes slides wow. on there all together. So, um, they're all slide decks, slide, not, not slide decks, but for the diabetes, oh, like there's like four mini lectures that all make up the diabetes section. It's like a hundred something cool. slides. That's great. So, um, check that out. And, uh, yeah, if you have any questions for Cole and myself, our emails will be in the show notes, and we can reach us on the social media platforms. We'll look forward to hearing from you guys. We'll see you on the next episode. Have a great one.